Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Patrick Doyle and David Brown. We are here to celebrate the life and music of Aretha Franklin, who Rolling Stone named the greatest singer of all time. And we have on the phone David Ritz, who both ghost wrote Aretha's autobiography and then went back and wrote a very different book about Aretha. The idea was basically the first book he ghost wrote for Aretha was a very sort of, it was a, a very polished version of her life. She held back on everything dark that she had done or experienced. And she wanted to present just sort of the queen of soul and nothing underneath. And then my understanding is that David Ritz kind of went back and took all the reporting he had done around it and did more reporting and wrote an entirely different book. Uh, it's called Respect. And it's a really unvarnished, seriously unvarnished look at Aretha Franklin. Aretha was not happy. And we'll hopefully talk to him about that. And also today we're going to be playing Patrick Doyle's interview with Aretha from a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. It's this, I think the second time you got together with her, right? You had, you had gone to lunch before? <laughs> um, the lunch was before, it was after that. The lunch was after, I, I interviewed her three times. I went to her birthday party at the Ritz and then I did a phone interview with her and then I uh, did a uh, more extensive interview with her at uh, the Ritz-Carlton and then which she did not let me uh, record so we cannot play that interview but we do have a uh, a phone interview which I think she was actually a lot more relaxed in because she was at home and she like was just talking about the, the music that meant the most to her which was kind of interesting because it was like music from 1957 all the way to like Pharrell she was a real serious consumer of music like even to the end so i thought that her enthusiasm really came across in this interview well what's cool about it and we'll play it in a little bit is it actually sort of functions as a musical autobiography Mm -hmm. she mentioned sam cook and by the way according to david ritz's book uh she not only had a crush on sam cook but it uh, was a consummated crush although she denied it so which is the kind of uh juice you get in david's book and let's see if we we have him now we may let's try here i am hi there thanks so much for being there it's it is my pleasure so we were talking about how, you know, first you, you ghost wrote Aretha's book and then turned around and wrote uh, the fascinatingly unvarnished book, Respect, about her. Uh-huh. I wanted to talk about her sort of essential dilemma. She had, you quote people who say that she had this sort of deep sadness in her. And, you know, at the same time she was making her best music and rising, she had an abusive husband and she was drinking too much. What was the sadness at, at the core there? Where did that come from? Well, you know, when she was two, her mom and dad got divorced, and her mom moved from Detroit to Buffalo, and so she sort of uh, lost her mom. I mean, she would, you know, she'd go to Buffalo over the summers to uh, visit her, but, you know, she wasn't there, and uh, that's hard. You know, you're a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old girl, and your mom's gone, and uh, her dad had custody and you know she's cared for by her dad and her dad's uh mom uh, her and, paternal... and her dad was the you know the wildest living preacher well, in america perhaps yeah, but you know i don't think i mean he he liked to uh party but he's also an intellectual he was a progressive at a time when very few black preachers were telling their kids you should sing jazz and listen to Duke Ellington and, you know, have Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum over for dinner. And so, I mean, you got to be careful how you characterize it. Yeah. He was a really uh, smart, 
And he was a uh, civil rights activist early on, you know, a really good pal of Martin Luther King Jr. and had all sorts of positive, you know, black is beautiful way before James had written that tune. So there was a whole bunch of aspects to him. So He was um, a complex guy. Yeah, and yeah. I, I was really struck by uh, his close friendship with B.B. King, that B.B. Uh, was, was his bluesman and uh, he was B.B.'s preacher. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and also if um, one other sort of moving thing for me is when Risa gave her uh, um, last concerts in the last 18 or 24 months of her life, she would always sing uh, Sweet uh, 16, and then she sung the hell out of it, and that I kind of found to be, uh, it's the only time, well, no, that's not true, she covered The Thrill is Gone, but any event. Uh, yeah, uh, it, was, it was, was sort of, of a, a yeah, it was sort of a tribute to both BB and I guess maybe secondarily her her father. Yeah, but I wonder if you could explain a little bit about Aretha's sort of musical formation. It, it obviously started in the church, started with her dad. But how did all that work? How did she find her style? How did she learn to sing? How did she learn to perform? As, well, she, as a very young person. Yeah, I mean, she's you know she's definitely the product of. Um, the golden age of gospel, which is, you know, a time from the late 1940s through the 1950s when you had these incredibly powerful uh, singers with operatic chops. And so she came up at a time when the bar couldn't be any uh, higher. And, and her first real role model was Clara Ward, who was also um, one of her dad's girlfriends. And so that made it intimate and complicated, but mm. also uh, Clara could sing, and you might remember that Clara Ward and the famous Ward Singers was the first gospel group to play in nightclubs. Yeah. They played in Las... Uh, in Vegas, right? Vegas yeah. and Birdland in New York, so they were a pioneer in crossing over or not adhering to kind of the strict boundaries of only singing gospel. So anyway, to answer your question, she's she's basically formed as a gospel singer, but given the environment of her home where her dad was an appreciator of not just sort of mainstream jazz of, you know, the Count Basie Duke Ellington variety, but his son, Cecil, who became uh, Reese's manager for 25 years, was a, a jazz student. So she grew up in a household where they were playing, you know, uh, Monk and Miles and Mingus and Bird, and he would take her to Baker's Keyboard Lounge in Detroit. She and her brothers would go there, and, you know, they'd hear Coltrane and uh, um, Rollins and so forth. So she had that education. She was steeped in jazz, and as a matter of fact, when her career began, when her dad skipped over Motown, because he didn't think it was an important enough recording company, and he took her to Columbia in New York. She began playing jazz clubs in those early years. You know, she would play the um, yeah. She would play. She would, she play, would play standards, the, uh, and yeah. She, you know, she would play the village uh, vanguard with a monk. So I mean, jazz was so. And anyway, the whole short version of this: she's steeped in gospel, she's steeped in the blues, and she's steeped in jazz. And that's all there is. And, and she could do them all. But not only could she do them all, she did them all at the same time. And I think that's what makes her so different than any other uh, singer. So when you hear her do Respect or Dr. Feelgood or whatever these big songs are, or even when she does 
a skylark early in her career on Columbia, you hear this kind of gospel praise and worship. Skylark, have you anything? You know, make a joyful noise, optimism of the black church, but she's also got the blues. Yeah. I mean, you know, she's had two children by the time she's 15 years old. Uh, her mom dies when she's 10. She has to leave her children to go to New York and try to make a career. She doesn't have any hits for the first five or six years while all her pals back at uh, Motown are having big hits. I mean, she's got the blues, so she doesn't just have the blues in her heart. She has the blues history in her head. So, And then she's in formed by the sophisticated phrasing of jazz. You know, she knows Ella and Sarah, and particularly uh, Dinah. Uh, so, as David was saying, it's it's easy to stereotype what the preacher dad would be in this scenario, but her dad actually was very excited about the idea of crossing over from gospel to pop. He was pushing her to do that. And Sam Cooke was a huge sort of influence and uh, vanguard there. When, Of course, right? Yeah, and, and I think one of the things that comes through in David's book also is that uh, it's an interesting part is that Aretha had a very competitive streak there. And I think she would kind of get the sense that she uh, she wanted hits yeah. uh, throughout her career. You could follow the, the course of American popular music through her, you know, with R&B into disco, into kind of, you know, 80s, some more synth poppy stuff. I mean, she kind of rode these waves and you kind of get that sense that that, that crossover thing was really instilled in her. Yeah, and, and also I kind of think you have, um, you know, a big word I think is aspirational. I mean, you have her dad who's come from a little town in the Mississippi Delta. First he goes to uh, Memphis, and he goes to Buffalo, then he goes to Detroit, and then he gets his big church, and he gets a sort of national reputation and a recording deal to record his sermons. And so he's aspirational, and for every reason in the world, he should be aspirational. He aspires to, you know, and and I think that aspirational vibe was in her, and she always aspired to have hits and increase her audience and to sing different kinds of material, and, you know, that's why she's singing opera at the Grammys, and there's nothing I can't do, and um, I think that's a, a big part of her, a big part of her journey. A strange sort of fundamental fact about Aretha Franklin is that she was signed to Columbia by John Hammond, who signed so many other great people. Yeah. And they proceeded to not know what to do with her for, what, seven, eight years. and Which is, you know, it it's always kind of blown my mind that this astonishingly great artist, although she recorded some great songs there, was matched with this huge record label, and the moment she leaves them and goes to Atlantic, that's when everything works. So what yeah. was the problem there, David? Well, the irony there to me was, and it's just an irony that's gonna, not ever going to be resolved, I think. You know, her dad knew Gordy and stuff, and he, you know, but he kind of went, no, man, this is like a local deal. I'm going to the label of Barbara Streisand and Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, Mahalia Jackson, and Andy Williams, and Johnny Mathis, you know, more of that aspirational stuff. And I think when they got there, their first thought, to a large degree, was to ultimately give her mainstream material so she could have a mainstream audience. It's back to the aspirational stuff. And right? by mainstream at that point, you meant what? They meant white, right? Well, they meant pop. I mean, there was, you know... Uh, Leslie Uggams and Diane Carroll, and there were, you know, singers singing, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, if, yes, 
I, I, I guess you could say white, but it was sprinkled in with some jazzy stuff and some soul stuff. You know, they had Clyde Otis, who was um, a brother who had produced the Dinah Washington, Brooke Benton duets. You know, so they toyed with it, but their main emphasis was on the Bob Mercy, who was one of their main producer arrangers. Their main emphasis was to get her a mainstream audience, which they never did. Now, the irony is when she goes to Atlantic and she signs with Jerry Wexler, he uses non-mainstream material, and that's what gets her a mainstream audience. <laughs> so right. he doesn't try to cross her over. They've been trying to cross her over for six years, he does the opposite. You know, he kind of says, man, she's, you know, this is the golden age of um, soul. I'm going to get her some, you know, super bad rhythm section. I'm going to put her at the piano because she's a gospel piano player. I'm going to... And it just was a moment in American history where that kind of music was hot and America was hungry for it and she became the avatar of it. And, and so... That's why I get a kick out of, you know... Uh, uh, now, you jump to the 80s, and you have Clive coming on the scene because now her Atlantic period is kind of dried up. She doesn't really serve... I mean, she complained about disco, but she tried to do disco. Disco's hits is an album called The Diva, which shows her as a disco-y chick, but she didn't have any hits. She didn't get the I Will Survive or the Donna kind of... Since we, had she gotten one of those songs, she definitely would have killed it. I mean, she would have crushed it, but she didn't get it. So, you know, in the 80s, it all begins over again on Arista, where Clive is the sort of master of mainstream crossover music. So, David Rich, thank you so much for joining us. David is the author, most recently, about Aretha Franklin and Respect the Life of Aretha Franklin, which is a super fascinating book. And we're going to play Patrick's interview with Aretha Franklin... And she calls you Mr. Doyle, you call her Miss Franklin, and that's yeah. sort of a, a, actually, I don't know if you fell into that, but that's what she expected from people. Oh yeah, they said, or dress her as Miss Franklin. When I went to her birthday party the first time, they said, make sure you do that. It was interesting because the first time I met her was at her birthday party, and she threw these things at the Ritz where, where she'd invite journalists, and like Denzel Washington came, was there, and um, politicians, and had the Count Basie Jazz Orchestra. Um, or Dizzy Gillespie All Stars, like the yeah, the, yeah. So she was just and Clive Davis was there, and um, but she had a contentious relationship with Rolling Stone over the years. She really, uh, Jason, who we work with, went to go uh, talk to her a few years earlier, and uh, went to see her sing jazz in Detroit, and went up to her, and she was very friendly, and asked if he could do an interview with her the following day. And um, she she agreed to it. And then she said, well, who are you here for? And when he said Rolling Stone, bodyguards descended on him <laughs> yeah. and it was separated from her and never saw her again. So it was always a little intense going into that situation. So uh, more than anyone else I've, I've interviewed. I think we won some points for, again, naming her the greatest singer of all time, putting her on the cover. Mm -hmm. You can feel the thawing of relations perhaps from that in your conversation with her. We should just jump right into it. Let's hear it. Mm -hmm. Mr. Doyle, Aretha Franklin, how are you? Hi, Miss Franklin, how are you doing? I'm very well, how are you? Good, thanks. We're recovering from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony last night. Uh -huh. It was fun, though. Oh, okay, how was that? It was fun. It's hectic, trying to report on it, enjoy it at the same time. It's just so many people in that room, it's a lot to take in. Hard to do that, trying to enjoy it and cover it, too. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? All sorts of things, Mr. Doyle, let's see. 
ever since, uh, what, December, I guess, 2013. I started with Christmas in Washington, and uh, it was wonderful with the exception of there was some downpour on the stage, so the uh, attendants had to come out with umbrellas for everybody, but it still was a good evening. The president and the first lady were there and the first family. And then uh, I went on to the talk mm-hmm. and did... Um, uh, they they were in New York. That's what happened. They were in New York for a Christmas uh, deal. They come out annually. Right. And so that's how I happened to be doing that. Had a wonderful time there, great time. Yeah. And then uh, went on to the, let's see, the Motor City Casino. I appeared here in Detroit. Yeah. Uh, one night, one concert. That must have been I special. And I had a ball. Had a ball there, it absolutely was, and uh, such a great room, very, very intimate, mm-hmm. intimate, but yet spacious, you know, they had capacity, mm-hmm. so it was just really great, and I had a really good time. That's great. And having a ball. Yeah, I, I was at your birthday party, and it was a blast. All right, wasn't that fabulous? That was amazing. That was a fabulous night. I just loved the... Uh, all-Stars, the Dizzy Gillespie All-Stars. That was great. That was the, uh, yeah, the uh, brass section. They are just too good to yeah. get through. Uh, that was so much fun. So thank you for doing this playlist interview. I loved your list. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just gave you my favorites. Yeah. Some of my favorites. You know, you couldn't cite them all, but I gave you some of them. D.B. Wonder, Pastime Paradise. That's a great choice. Been spending most of their lives living in a pastime Oh, yeah. Love that. In fact, I just asked my assistant to go out and buy that again for me. I mean, from cut to cut, that is one of the greatest, uh, it was an LP at the time, LPs I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. Musically, in my opinion, that is one of the greatest. What is your relationship with with Stevie like today? Oh, it's very good, always. Stevie's the homeboy, (laughs) and uh, it's always lovely to see him and wonderful just to chat with him. He's such, such an interesting conversationalist. Number nine is, I love this song, uh, Sam Cooke, You Send Me. Darling, you send me. I know oh, yeah, what a great song. What a great song. <laughs> Melodically, it's just, you know, it just uh, stands the test of time. That song came out in 1967, I think, and I don't care when you hear it, it always sounds great. It doesn't sound dated, and it's always current. You know, you just can't beat it. Uh, it's, uh, it's always contemporary. I don't care when you hear it. What was Sam like? Sam was a beautiful man, uh, very charming and uh, very engaging person, uh, not to mention the great artist that he was, great artist. A lot of personality, a whole lot of personality. <laughs> Thrilling, just thrilling. Yeah. Thrilling for me and every other woman in there. <laughs> just thrilling. He, yeah, he was a charmer, right? Oh, yeah, he was definitely that. <laughs> uh, a great, uh, great musical artist, one of the great artists of our time. When you would watch him performing, what was his persona on stage like, or as far as the way he could put a song across? Um, I would say that it was very simplistic. He didn't do uh, a lot of running around on the stage and uh, because, you know, he knew he didn't have to. Yeah. He had a voice, and uh, he didn't have to do anything but stand in one place and wipe you out. 
you remember seeing him perform this song? You send me. I saw it on uh, Ed Sullivan. Believe oh. it or not, I saw him on Ed Sullivan. Oh wow! And uh, that's where he first performed that. He also, when we first heard it, I heard it on the radio driving down south, traveling with my dad, uh, doing uh, services in various uh, city auditoriums and arenas. Mm -hmm. When my sister Irma and I were in the car because she used to be the secretary. And when that came on the radio, it came on from a show called Randy uh, of Gallatin, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Randy's of Gallatin. Big, big show in the South. Mm -hmm. And when that record came on, we had to stop the car. It was pandemonium in the car. Really? My sister and I got out of the car, and we were just running around the car screaming, Sam, Sam was on, Sam was on, Sam is on the radio. Listen to this song. <laughs> and we were just having one fit on the highway. I mean, we were just thrilled because he had just left the gospel field. Mm -hmm. And uh, no one had heard his first record yet. So that was the first hearing of what he did after he left the gospel field. Wow. So it was super exciting for us. She was a singer's singer, what you call a singer's singer. Absolutely. All of the singers aspired to be Sam, a lot of them. Were you influenced by him as a singer? To begin with, yes, I was. And my dad told me to not do that, that uh, I had a voice and to sing myself. Don't copy Right, Sam. right, right, right. Yeah, my dad stopped that early on because he saw I was going in that direction. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, and he was absolutely right. Number seven, another great song, Same Old Love by Anita Baker. Because I think about you, baby, from beginning to end. 365 days of the year. I want your same old love, baby. Oh, I love that. I love the, uh, the melody and the feel. It, it reminds me of um, a place called the Arcadia that used to be really, really big when I was coming up with kids and teenagers. And uh, that was something that uh, it was the feel from the Arcadia that kids would roller skate off of. And, of course, I uh, would live in the roller rink. I was there on Sunday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Wow. When was that? Oh, when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roller skating. They had uh, ladies only, couples only, men only, trios. Yeah. Different uh, variations of people out on the floor. Your number eight was In the Midnight Hour by Wilson Pickett. Another great one. I'm Love it, love it, love it. Wilson Pickett was one of the greatest vocalists of our time, R&B vocalists. Uh -huh. Wilson Pickett could um, hit a lick out of the melody, and he was on. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Be singing off the melody, but it was on. I mean, he would go into what you call a squall, and it might not be in the key of the song, mm -hmm. but it 
but it worked. Yeah, I did that on the mid in the midnight hour and a number of other things. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, how much are, How much are you going to pay me for these trade secrets? <laughs> how about ten cover ten cover issues? <laughs> I, I'd love that. I think that's well deserved. Were you friends with with Wilson? Um, lightly. He came from Detroit. He used to sing with a gospel group called the Violinaires. Uh-huh. But uh, our paths didn't cross a lot. He came to Detroit with James Brown once, and we all did something downtown in one of the new discos there. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, of course, being a label mate, uh, I heard all of his music. Mm, the Midnight Hour? Yeah. Yeah, great song, great song. What a great song. Yeah. Um, the next next song is The Four Tops, MacArthur Park. Break was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed The Tops, uh, MacArthur Park. Yeah. Was something, was the kind of song that you didn't hear uh, Levi sing a lot. Mm-hmm. But when he did, he would make it his own. Mm-hmm. And really classic, just classic from Levi Stubbs. And the tops had a harmony, just um, super harmony. They had a sound unlike any other. Oh, yeah, I love Blurred Lines. Just love the groove. I know that it's very similar to Marvin Gaye's thing. Yeah. And there is some controversy, of course, around the song as to where the production came from, et cetera. Yeah. But I just love the groove. Love the groove. And number three is uh, respect. What you want, baby, I got it. What you need, you know I got it. All I'm asking is for a little respect when you come home. Yeah, what about that? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, just love it. That's, uh, of course, that's, that became uh, a mantra for the civil rights movement. And uh, uh, respect, of course, is just basic to everyone. Everybody wants respect. Even uh, small children want respect. They don't know what, they don't know that they want it, but they want respect. You know, they let you know, they let you know when they need something, you know, that they want something and they want a little respect. For that, everybody wants and needs respect in some way or the other. It's basic to mankind. Do you remember recording respect? Of course, yes, what? I do, yeah, uh-huh. The, uh, with the Memphis horn, sure, down in Muscle Shoals. Uh, great session, great session, great players, and very nice people. Did you have any inkling that's going to be the smash that it that became? No, I had no idea. No idea, no. There's been essays written on it as far as how you were a pioneer of the, the feminist movement with songs like that. And as far stuff. as I know, I think Gloria Steinem. Uh-huh. That's Gloria Steinem's uh, uh-huh. role. I don't think that, that, that I was a catalyst or anything for the civil rights movement. I mean, not the civil rights movement, the women's movement, sorry. Right. Right. Um, but um, if I were... So much the better. You know, women did, then it did, and still do need equal rights. We're doing the same job. We expect the same pay and the same respect. Do you ever get tired of singing respect? Actually, no. I really, I love it, and uh, I find new ways after, uh, after the years, new ways to just keep it fresh for me without changing exactly what it is people heard on the record. How did that song change your life? How did it change my life? Certainly, um, 
in terms of uh, my growth in the industry, appearances and so on, after, you know, after a hit record, a lot of things change pretty much uh, and pretty much in that way. The number of dates I'm do- I was doing, the kind of engagements I was doing and that sort of thing, TV came into play and uh, uh, specials and all of that sort of thing. And the last thing about that song, why do you think it's had the lasting impact that it's had? I think because, as I said, it is basic right. to, uh, to everyone. Everyone wants respect. Yeah, yeah. Who doesn't want to be respected? Who doesn't want to be respected? So I think that was the success of it, uh, that they could very easily relate. And, and uh, what they perhaps could not say, the record said it for them. And how did the backup vocals happen on that song? Well, my sister Carolyn and I got together on that. Uh-huh. And during that time uh, in Detroit, there was a cliche called Sock It To Me. Uh-huh. And uh, I decided to put that in the, in the background. Sock It To Me, Sock It To Me, Sock It To Me. There was nothing sexual about that. Really? Oh, okay. Cause they Just, yeah, no, there was nothing sexual about it. Um, some people thought that, but it wasn't. And, of course, Laugh-In came along and just stole it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me, and did their thing with it. <laughs> what, what did sock it to me mean as far as when it was a cliche? It's like, give me a high five, high right. fiving. Right, right, right. Yeah. And number one is Happy by Pharrell. great song what do you love about about happy? love happy love happy yeah it's it's a melody that makes you feel happy yeah you know it's just a delightful delightful little melody that almost anybody can sing and uh it's something that sam said about hit records if people can sing along with you it probably will be a hit yeah i love his delivery of that song it's very good it's perfect there one more song that comes to your mind that just uh, after doing this that you didn't include? Oh, Barry White. Barry White. Oh. One of my favorite artists. One of my favorite artists. Can't get enough of your love. And uh, we had what we had. Whatever we It's over, over now. Those are two of my favorites of Barry. What did you love about Barry? I just like the tone of his voice and uh, the moniker of the maestro. Um, and he certainly lived up to that. Uh, the Love Unlimited Orchestra. And uh, he and I used... One of the same arrangers back in the day, Gene Page, used to do a lot of my arrangements, mm-hmm. as well as Barry's. Uh-huh. And uh, the fact that he came from very humble beginnings to the success that he walked into right. was a great, great story. That's- How he used to walk, you know, from the valley to Los Angeles looking for a job. Mm-hmm. At that time, he was not the Barry White that we came to know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I said, you know, that tells you when a person really wants a job, how far they will go. 
Right. And because that's a long, long walk from the valley to L.A., if you know anything about the valley. Mm -hmm. That's a good 30, 30 miles, maybe. Wow. Wow. But he would walk it daily. He would walk it daily. (laughs) Looking for a job. Oh, my God. So, you know, when people say, I'm looking for a job, and uh, they tell you a few little things that they're doing, I say, you couldn't be serious. You're not really looking for a job. Barry White was looking for a job. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) I know what you mean. I mean, people just uh, send out a couple resumes. That's not enough. (laughs) Yeah, a couple of resumes, and, well, that's not really looking for a job. What Barry White did was really looking for a job. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. That was some excellent career advice from Aretha Franklin. In her conversation with Patrick Doyle from a couple years ago, she was meant to give a playlist of some of her favorite songs for a playlist issue we were doing, but I think she ended up giving sort of a a musical autobiography. It was a a really interesting and friendly interview, and and I'm very glad you got such a good recording of it, Patrick. Thank you. (laughs) When I was editing it, I cut out the part where uh, room service arrived with chili dogs for her. Yeah. Uh, I think she was at home too. I think it, it was in her apartment. <laughs> I, I would like the idea if she had room service in her apartment. I somehow. think she did. <laughs> that is truly living the dream. Oh, that is real queen stuff. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I guess we all have that with seamless. Maybe it was just seamless. No, I don't. I okay. think it was something higher level than that. <laughs> queen, queenless. So, Patrick, you also had lunch with her. What was that lunch like? Um, that was interesting it was the same week that that david ritz book came out and so she was in a very bad mood because she was very unhappy with with the book and um i didn't even bring it up to her except at one point i i read a quote that her sister said about how um her her, she channels the holy spirit when she sings and i didn't even say that was from the book and she knew it was from the book and she said uh carolyn would have never said something like that uh that's that's not her voice. That's fake. And so I knew not to, to go any further with the book. But she loosened up over over time. When we talked about the past, the gospel and her father, I mean, that was all right. But then when we just started loosening up and talking about current pop charts, Taylor Swift, and she just kind of loosened up and was seemed like a, a, a real person and just kind of humanized her uh, to me. Well, was there a reason that she wouldn't allow you to tape it? Um, I brought out the tape recorder at the beginning of the, the interview and... I put it on the table and I saw her look at it. So I said, do you mind if I tape this? Which I usually, usually, I mean, it's kind of understood that you're going to be doing that during an interview. And she said, <laughs> yeah. and she said, no. And then I said, um, it's not for, to be released or anything. It's just to, it's, <laughs> which would have been a lie <laughs> if I had it today, but yes. Right. God, yeah. But then I said, um, it's not to be released. It's just so I can remember it. And then she said, you can make notes. And then I, I just got terrified because making notes as you're trying to do an interview is the entire transcribing it. It can be a little tough. But uh, <laughs> it's very Prince-like. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. David, you once got an email from Aretha Franklin. I did. Uh, and it's interesting that we were talking earlier about her issues with Rolling Stone, which I was not aware. <laughs> yeah. Back uh, six years ago when I was doing a, uh, a cover story on Adele, and we thought that it would be interesting to kind of reach out to other great singers and ask uh, their opinions on her, and uh, so first person on the list was Aretha. So I reached out to her uh, her contact person and said, you know, explained what I was doing, and I said, you know, we we'd love to uh, see if Aretha has a take on Adele. You know, one great singer to another, and all that. And um, her contact said, well, you know, I'll ask. We'll see. I said, okay. And then about an hour later or so, I get this uh, thing pops up in my um, inbox, 
And it's it, the email started in the subject. It was all caps. Mm-hmm. It started in the subject header and then went into the body copy. <laughs> and and it just said, hi, uh, enjoy Adele. She's an original. Love her lyric. Reminiscent of the Carol King lyric of the 60s. Just better. Got a kick out of schoolgirls yelling on the school bus. We could have had it all. Sure you're right, Adele. They'll blow a good woman every time. Four exclamation points. And it wasn't signed or anything. And I'm looking at this going... <laughs> What is this? Is some <laughs> obsessed Abdel fan suddenly emailing me out of the blue? And then I looked at, you know, again, no signer. Then I looked at the email address, and it was uh, one of her nicknames, you know, at something or whatever service she used. And I went, oh, my God. Oh, this is Aretha. Right. <laughs> it was bizarre. You know, but I think it was that, uh, you know, to get back to what Patrick said, I mean, I think one of the things about Aretha is that she was both this kind of imposing, regal, Queen of Soul figure, Miss Franklin. But there was another kind of very human, earthy, approachable kind of side to her. She had a kind of interesting duality to her. And the fact that she would, you know, email me directly. And I think I even wrote her back. I don't think she was, re- I don't remember if she responded. But you rarely get emails directly from <laughs> sure. someone of that level. You know? We only have a couple minutes left, but I, I wanted to touch on our sort of favorite Aretha moments. And I, I think for me, it's her uh, Live at the Fillmore West album with this insane band it was uh, king curtis's band and king curtis was uh, murdered not long after which sort of robbed her of this she had found the perfect band leader this insanely funky band blowing away the hippies at, at filmer west and it's, it's the it's the live album where uh she pulls ray charles out of the audience who never ever ever sat in with people or mm-hmm. did guest appearances and he gets up and they repeat the song she had just done uh, spirit in the dark and just kind of do it again and he didn't even know the lyrics and it's this whole but it's just it's a fantastic concert and and, and it was very fraught you know because you know she was uh, not used to playing for you know quote unquote hippies you know so when right. they, they broached you know the Fillmore West in 1971 was like you know ground zero of the West Coast counterculture and, and she you know was quoted as saying like I don't know about this she was she had just come from Vegas you know she reached that level and so there was a lot of nervousness on her part and to to kind of pave the way, make it a little more uh, acceptable. That's they, they included all these like white rock numbers. Yeah, love like the make, one you're with. Love the one you're with. <laughs> make it with you by Bread, Eleanor Rigby, things like that, and which are all great. I mean, and, and are great examples of the way that she would take a song like that or Bridge Over Troubled Water and she just own it. Like you wouldn't even remember that there was an original and some of those maybe not Eleanor Rigby but certainly other ones well I love Eleanor Rigby because she's just like I am Eleanor Rigby and you're like okay uh, but it's there's so much great stuff and there's there's so many songs that you might forget that she recorded famous songs that you don't think of as being hers I don't know people get ready she has an unbelievable version of people get ready mm-hmm. so it's it's hold just on like, i'm coming she did yeah, in the 80s a, yeah it's just a, a million version. a million things that you can go back and find and it's you know it's listen it's one of the major treasures of the 20th century the, and we were very lucky to have her but this has been today's rolling stone music now i think we could give her a few episodes if we could and we'll be back next week here on sirius xm volume channel 106 on Friday at 1 p.m. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. And thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.